be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and thank you for listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your host, Kate Ebner, and today's episode is the last one in our month of celebrating women leaders. We've been doing this all through the month of March, which is Women's History Month, and today I'm very honored to be joined by an inspiring leader whose work has touched the lives of thousands of women all over the globe, Anne Firth Murray. Anne is the founding president of the Global Fund for Women, a very successful international nonprofit that provides funds to strengthen groups committed to women's well-being all over the world. Currently, she teaches courses on women's health and human rights, and also love as a force for social justice. She's a consulting professor in human biology at Stanford University. Anne's also worked at the Hewlett Foundation at University Presses and as a writer at the UN. She's authored two books and is the recipient of many awards. In 2005, Anne joined an elite group of women nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I'm delighted that you're here and um, really look forward to um, to sharing your view with our listeners today. Um, so I want to say welcome. And I, I like to start off, Anne, by just inviting you to tell us a bit about who you are and how you came to do the work that you do. So why don't we just open up with that open question. Tell us who you are. <laughs> okay. Um, I am a New Zealander. I happen to have uh, been born in New Zealand, and I'm still a New Zealand citizen. I mention that because New Zealand is a little country that's had quite a an influence on the world, but it also is the first country in the world where women had the vote. I don't know if that uh, had anything to do with my moving into the field of international women's health and human rights, but it is something in my background that it pertains, I think, in some way. I was working at the Hewlett Foundation running a couple of programs on population and environmental issues, and I f- found myself more and more intrigued by the role of women in these, in these issues. Um, this was back in the 1980s, early, late 70s and 80s, and I increasingly wanted to be able to support women's groups through my programs at the uh, Hewlett Foundation. That turned out not to be possible, but I learned more and more about the role of women in development at that time, and the whole field, in fact, was referred to as women in development. 
And I became more and more anxious to be able to help women's groups, groups that were supported and, and, well, that were led and governed primarily by women. So it was a professional interest I, I, that really started my journey toward um, focusing on women's health and human rights. But there were and also personal aspects to it. I don't know how far you want to get into that. Well, I would love to hear you tell us a little bit about... Um Certainly, we want to hear the personal aspects, and we also would love to hear about, you know, what was it about women and the role of women in the world that that really drew you? Maybe those two things are related. Well, looking at issues relating to population, demography, family planning, and that sort of thing, it seems perfectly obvious that one should be focusing equally on women as on men. Um, But back in the 1970s and 80s, that wasn't the case. Um, uh, first, it's hard to explain, but it's a very recent focus now, and I think anyone working internationally would know that any organization that works internationally now that doesn't have a women's program or doesn't have a focus on women would be really off base. I mean, we'd, we'd know that now, but that wasn't the case 30 years ago. Um, we weren't focusing particularly or even taking into account what women themselves were doing, and many organizations um, were not. Uh, uh, led by women, and uh, women were really quite invisible. In fact, women's lives were private rather than public. Um, So, as I say, working at the foundation, I was traveling widely, and I met many women who were doing very interesting things, but they weren't part of the sort of establishment that were going to be uh, the establishment that was not uh, that was going to be funded by uh, major donors and they were running networks or small organizations that we might not hear about um, and yet uh, now it seems obvious i mean it is obvious that if you're looking at population and environmental issues and education and health it's absurd not to be focusing on and and in fact funding women's programs but that was the case. So I tried to make the argument when I was working at the Hewlett Foundation, um, and I became more and more kind of determined to make that argument. Um, it, it made no sense strategically to be ignoring what women were doing and the roles of women at that time in these fields. Um, but I'm not sure I'm really um, uh, responding to your question, but let me take a minute and talk a little bit about myself, which is what you first yeah. asked for. Um, I grew up in a family of a very happy family and um, New Zealanders who lived in America. I grew up in California and Canada, and I always have had an American accent with a slight Canadian tinge. Um, mm. But um, my, I had an older brother, four years older than me, and my brother, um, though my parents were perfectly wonderful people, uh, my brother always seemed to get some privileges that I didn't get. Um, he was allowed to have a paper route, for example, or he was allowed to stay out longer, or he could go out alone and have adventures that I wasn't able to have. And it wasn't just because I was four years younger. It was that my mother would say, well, you know, you're a girl. You, we don't want you out there on, on the streets, where, you know, <laughs> delivering papers. No, girls can't, and girls couldn't do it anyway. Um, and there were there were things like that that came up in my childhood that really made me sort of mad. And even when I got into university, I was at Berkeley uh, studying political science and economics. 
And I came home one day, I remember, and was chatting with my mother, and who was a very strong and independent and wonderful person. But um, we, were, we were chatting, and I said, you know, I met some people at the university today who said that I should go on and get a Ph.D. And my mother said, well, don't get too educated. And oh. I said, well, and she said, no, you know, men really don't like women who are too educated. I mean, you'll get married, and, you know, you don't, don't get too educated. Um, and I remember it. I remember the conversation. I remember even where it took place. But, in fact, I listened and thought my mother was giving me advice that was the best advice she could give me for a person in that age, in that era. We're now talking back in the 1950s. Um, mm-hmm. Because I was, in fact, destined, I suppose, to find some nice man and get married. There were a lot of other little incidents, of course, along the way, and certainly when I went out into the world and started to work and found that uh, what jobs were open to me at the time, um, even when I went to the United Nations, where I was an intern in 1955, after the internship, which was a summer internship, there were about 30 of us, and there were some girls, I was one of them, and they weren't called women, they were called girls, and... um, we uh, maybe wanted to stay on and work at the United Nations. And the boys were offered professional jobs, and all the girls were offered secretarial or file clerk jobs. And I took a job as a file clerk. That was my first job at the United Nations. So it it sort of rubbed off on me. I mean, I wasn't an arch-feminist at that time, um, but I felt that it was unfair. I mean, I, I understood that it was unfair, even though I didn't become some sort of radical um, until later, um, because that was the way the world was. However, that's part of the background that led me, I think, into uh, becoming really very adamant about the importance of treating women equally, bringing women wholeheartedly into full participation in the world, not just because we needed women's talents and special perspectives, but also just out of justice. You know, I, I'm so glad that you shared that. And I think it's, um, it brings, you know, flashes us back to earlier times when things weren't the way they are today. And okay. I think it absolutely uh, reminds us of both the progress we've made, but also what it, what it was like to be there and to actually be part of making that progress. And, um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, as, as you, as you reflect on this, um, you, you said a very compelling phrase a minute ago, you said, I had not become a radical yet or something like that. <laughs> what, what happened next? Tell us the rest. Well, I, I might say that things might be better. I mean, they are better now, 30 years later. Um, when I found out that I was being paid significantly less at a particular job, uh, professional job, than the than the men on the staff, and I was certainly doing the same job and better, actually, than they were, um, but I was being paid significantly less. And I raised the issue, this was back in the 1970s, I raised the issue with the president, and uh, he was stunned. He said, first thing he said was, in all my years of running organizations, I, I, only one or two people have ever raised uh, an issue like this, and always to their detriment. I mean, it was a direct threat. And I said, well, what would you have done in my position if you learned that you were being paid so much less than people doing exactly the same work? 
Um, and I was doing it competently, very competently, because I'd had excellent evaluations. And he said, you're making a very good salary for a woman. Uh-huh. Now, when I told my friends this, this is back in the 1970s, okay? Mm-hmm. When I told my friends this, they, say, they said, sue them, sue them. And I thought, well, I don't want to discuss the name of the organization. But, the, uh, but there was no way I, I was going to sue at that point. First of all, there were no precedents. There was no, you know, there was no case. If they didn't want to pay me equally, they could choose to not pay me equally. There's no way I would have made the case. Nowadays, you'd obviously sue if you were being um, unequally paid. Um, but you probably wouldn't be unequally paid in the kind of job I had, which was a professional job. But let's not forget, although we talk about great changes being made and we think of changes in this country, um, women are still being paid about 80% uh, of men's salaries for equal work in this country now. I mean, pay is still quite out of whack. It is. It is. So, so, and uh, we're actually going to take a break right now. Oh. And when we come back, um, time is flying for us already, but we're going to come back and, and pick up here because I know that these are the kinds of issues and, and, and systemic issues that you've been working on your whole career. This is Kate Ebner. I'm talking with Anne Firth-Murray today, and we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. 
All this month on the radio show, as you know, we've been hosting a diverse and impressive group of women leaders. Today, I'm so pleased to have Anne Firth Murray, a professor at Stanford University and founding president of the Global Fund for Women. She's here on the show with me today, and she's really giving us a lot of perspective. Um, and I want to pick up where we left off, and we, what we were talking actually about was the uh, both your experience of the pay gap between women and men you know, in the 70s, and actually the fact that that gap still exists today. Um, I'd love to invite you to, 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 to take us into, take us down the road with you a little bit further, uh, you know, as, okay. as you progressed. Okay. Um, I don't want to focus too much on myself because let me just say that I'm a very lucky person. Yes, I've had jobs where I was unequally paid, and yes, I wasn't able to get certain jobs. I couldn't get into certain universities. There were only men admitted into the Ivy League schools when I went to university, and so on and so forth. I've had experiences of discrimination, but at base, I'm an extremely lucky person. I've had a good life and a healthy life, and I feel very, very lucky. But for for whatever reason, probably having to do with my parents, not any kind of a religious background or anything, but I always was taught when I was young that we were a very fortunate family. My father had a job during the Depression, the other, the last Depression back in the 30s, and we always considered ourselves lucky. My mother um, essentially uh, taught me that, and and with that feeling that we were fortunate came a sense of obligation and responsibility that we were fortunate and others weren't and as a result we had an obligation or responsibility to be helpful to other people so i grew up with that uh, that sort of ethos in my in the household and i can remember many a time passing you know women begging on the streets in new york or something and thinking oh my god you know i'm lucky there but for the grace of God go I. I I might have been that person. And um, so that certainly influenced me hugely in the work I wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to do nonprofit work, and it would be international because I grew up in a kind of international household. And so I found myself, in fact, running an international couple of international programs at the Hewlett Foundation and there becoming very conscious of the gap between men and women and the not just in terms of their pay but, but what was happening to women internationally and particularly that foundations, and I had become very active in the, in the United States and the American philanthropic world on the boards of various organizations, but running this program, which was a large program, at the Hewlett Foundation. So I became very involved in philanthropy and observed that very little money was going toward women. Um, and then I began to think I really would love to be able to do something about this. And I tried to get it uh, a women's program, actually, to... Um, begin within my broader program on population at the Hewlett Foundation, but I didn't succeed in getting that at the Hewlett Foundation. So when I left after my stint there, which was almost 10 years, I, um, I, I began the Global Fund for Women. I, I felt that there was a major niche for um, a philanthropy, a, an organization that would give away money to women's groups to do what they wanted to do, small women's groups. Because I'd met many women around the world who would ask me, where could we raise $5,000? Where could we raise three or $4,000 to start a program here in wherever it might be, uh, Korea or Nigeria, on, on violence against women? And I couldn't really think of many um, places where they could go. 
Um, there were a few small funders that were giving away small grants for various purposes, but um, I realized that there was a need for a foundation, an, an organization, that would make small grants available to women around the world. So what was the year they did this? 1987. 1987. Yeah. So really at the forefront of this microfinance concept that's now taken off. Yes, that's a whole other topic of conversation is microfinance. We had in mind, um, or what I had in mind, was a grant-making program. Microfinance is a lending program and very good if it's done well. But um, what I had in mind was a, a grant-making program. I was, after all, running a, a, a grant-making program at the Hewlett Foundation, so I knew something about giving away other people's money. Um, but I uh, didn't know anything about fundraising. So when we created the Global Fund for Women, um, that's where we had to start. I mean, because n nobody involved at the very beginning was a millionaire, and so we were going to raise money. And so um, it began that way, and that was in 1987. And I quickly learned how to learn how to raise money, um, and that was fascinating and very interesting. And I sort of plunged into the whole business of creating this new organization, the Global Fund for Women, from nothing, really. I I was so um, determined that it would succeed, and and no, and I didn't even know what success would mean, except that it would happen. That we would raise money and we'd give away money to women's groups around the world in small grant grants to do what they wanted to do and not what donors told them to do. So that's um, that was the beginning of it, and I became some sort of fanatic. <laughs> Um, at that point, I'd say the first three or four years of the Global Fund for Women, anybody would have described me that way. Uh -huh. um, um, so anyway, that that was the beginning, I, and uh, it really happened over dinner with a couple of friends who had asked me, what are you going to do when you leave the Hewlett Foundation? What? And I said, well, you know, I feel um, sorry that I wasn't able to start a program to support women's groups while I was at the Hewlett Foundation. And I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'll probably go off and I'll consult or I'll do this and that. And then one of the other women there at that dinner, we were having dinner at a Council on Foundations meeting, and she said, well, why don't you start your own foundation? And I said, well, you know, if I had a million dollars, I would. And she said, well, you could raise the money. What do you have in mind? And I talked about what I did have in mind, this idea of creating a pool of funds to be given away in small amounts to women's groups internationally. And um, and she said, well, that seems like a good idea. I'd probably donate to it, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, I probably would donate to it. And so that night I couldn't sleep. I just absolutely lay awake at night thinking about this thing and thinking, I think I'm going to do this. And I had really no idea where I was headed, although I was having breakfast the next morning with an amazing woman from Barbados who was a very um, active in the international women's movement, Dame Nita Barrow. And she had been the convener of the Nairobi Women's United Nations Women's Conference in 1985. And I happened to be having breakfast with her because she was the speaker at, a, at an organization having to do with women and foundations. And I was on the board, so I was, my job was to get her to the meeting so that she could give the keynote address. So anyway, she asked me, what's new, Anne? What's ha happening with you these days? And I told her about this idea that had kept me awake the night before. And to make a fairly long story short, she said, let me get this straight, Anne. You want to raise a lot of money and give it away to women's groups so that they can do what they want to do. And I said, that's right. That's the idea. And she said, if you do this, it will make a difference to women. And mm. I want to be part of it. And I said, well, will you be on the board? 
And she said yes, and not just in name only, because she was a very well-known person. Anyway, that was the beginning. It just created the organization on the spot, you know. Anyway, there's much to say about the creation of the organization, and actually I have described it in my first book, which is called Paradigm Found, which is essentially about the creation of the Global Fund for Women. Great. Well, I hope our listeners will read your first book and follow the story of how this paradigm was found. And, and um, you know, one, one question I have for you, knowing that the work you have done for women has so often focused on helping them find a positive action they can take, um, could you just speak for a moment about um, this emphasis on positive change? You know, what, what does that mean? Well, Again, a little bit about myself, not too much. That is, I'm basically an optimist. I'm, you know, I'm somebody who is very lucky to have grown up with a very positive attitude toward life. But becoming involved and interacting with women internationally um, almost didn't allow one to become negative. I mean, after all, we were looking, we were responding to women's groups that were coming to the Global Fund for Women with their ideas for change. Now, their ideas might be trying to deal with problems that were really unthinkable in many ways, many of them having to do with violence against women, um, violences of various kinds, uh, trafficking in women, um, forced prostitution, female genital mutilation, uh, ordinary domestic violence, those kinds of questions. And these women were coming together to try to do something about these issues and doing something. And all we were doing was trying to raise money and give it to them so that they could get on with it. To me, it was completely inspiring. I mean, I think if you can, you become involved in the awful issues of the day. I mean, the world could be seen and is seen. It is a violent place. I mean, there's a lot. If we focus on women, we can, again, you know, count and speak of all of the issues that, that can bring us down. Uh, but there are people all over the place, not just women's groups. We were focusing on women's groups, working on on these issues. And although I would say that I think that the world is in a in a very difficult place um, financially, um, in terms of violence proliferating as a kind of strategy for people to retain, uh, kind of maintain their positions in, of power, it's it can be seen in a very negative way. But Day after day at the Global Fund for Women, we received requests in any language. We accepted them in any language um, uh, from women that were working on these issues. So it, it would be very hard to be negative. They were positive. They were believing that they could make a difference, and all they needed maybe was um, validation and, in some cases, money. Money, I, money. We, that's what we were doing. We were raising money and giving away money, but I don't believe money is at the center of social change. I think people's commitment and belief in um, a, a kind of right way to do things or a consciously uh, kind and, and loving way to do things um, is inspiring and is, in fact, what makes change. It's, money helps. It, it can allow them to start an organization or, you know, pay rent for an office or something, but it isn't what actually makes real change. And we were daily being in touch with women who had that kind of commitment and vision. Um, and it was inspiring. It is inspiring. And, and, and just listening to you talk about it, it is inspiring. And, and, and you know, I think we're going to have to take another break right now, Anne. But I really appreciate, once again, your um, 
you're sharing that view because you're right. It is sometimes a, a it is a violent and disturbing world, and sometimes we get caught up in those issues and we we look right past the people who are who are in in those places actually doing what they can and and doing it with great conviction and courage. We're going to take a break right now. This is Kate Ebner. I'm speaking with my guest, Anne Firth-Murray. I hope you'll join us when we come back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Tune in every week for the Ellis Martin Report. Our program will bring you the news and information that you need each week. We look at publicly traded small and mid-cap companies from a variety of sectors. We'll talk to key people in the industry to bring you the foreground and background of new and -and up-and-comers for potential investment. Please remember, invest only at your own risk. The Ellis Martin Report is meant for information purposes only. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate Ebner. Today, I'm speaking with Anne Firth-Murray, who's been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. She's done extraordinary work for women around the world, and she's done this, I think, over the course of a lifetime is what we've really been hearing. And before the break, we were talking about um, the inspiration, actually, that you uh, felt and experienced as you um, worked with the Global Fund for Women. And I'm curious, you know... um, as you as you had that experience, I know today you actually are, are teaching a class called Love as a Force for Social Justice. I'd love it if you could just describe, I guess, the evolution of what you learned and the inspiration that, that you found. 
Um, yes. Well, first of all, let me tell you that I was one of a thousand women nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It was a nomination that was done of a group of women, a very inspired and interesting uh, interesting thing that some uh, women's groups in Europe decided to do. Um, in fact, we didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize. One man did uh, when uh, the other nomination was, in fact, a thousand women, all of whom had been working on peace and nonviolence, essentially. Um, well, we were talking about uh, my interest and my, my sort of immersion in the Global Fund for Women. It, 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 this happened over the, 18, uh, the 1980s and 1990s, and there came a time um, in the mid-1990s, much to say about it, but the Global Fund for Women essentially could have become absolutely and completely immersed in the issue of violence against women. So many groups were beginning to um, emerge all over the world um, looking at this issue of violence against women, domestic violence, rape, other kinds of violences, more public. But, but beginning to say to the world that this seemingly invisible uh, issue, that is violence in the home, was something that the world needed to know about. It. Until that time, it had been a very private issue. In other words, we at the Global Fund for Women were in a bit of a dilemma because we found ourselves responding to requests from group after group after group around the world on the issue of violence against women when we also wanted to be funding what we would consider very positive things like women's um, part political participation or legal uh, networks developing here and there and all kinds of interesting things. Certainly there was something positive about, uh, very positive about the fact that women were highlighting this tremendous epidemic of violence against women. Um, and I became very concerned about the issue. Um, this happened at a time when I was not only running the Global Fund, but I was also beginning to um, uh, write, uh, write a, think about writing a book about it. And so I began to be um, very immersed in the issue and very concerned about this issue of violence against women. But it was not until a few years later when I had actually retired from the Global Fund and began teaching at Stanford when I was actually teaching classes on, as I still do, on critical issues in international women's health, those critical issues being human rights issues and health issues. And one of them right at the center is this issue of violence and various kinds of violence. And I began, this was about 2006 or so, 2007, to um, feel myself being almost dragged down by thinking about this issue and the incredible prevalence of it. One out of three women worldwide will suffer domestic violence um, in her lifetime. One out of three. I mean, if it were an epidemic, a, a contagious disease, this we would consider it an epidemic and maybe do something about it. Uh, but I became very concerned about it, and I thought, well, just to make sure that I don't fall into a pessimistic way of life, I decided to begin not only continuing to teach about these issues, but thinking about the opposite. And so I began to read about nonviolence, and I began to read something of, of uh, Gandhi and others, and realized that Gandhi equated nonviolence with love. And just about that time, I was asked to, re to teach another class at Stanford, not just the one on women's health, but another class which was for sophomores. And I had been teaching even a women's health class at that level, but I was asked to teach again a sophomore seminar. And I said, well, I'd like to do that. I like teaching the sophomores, but I, um, I want to teach on a different topic. And so I suggested uh, love 
as an exploration or love as a force or something. And they said, yes, they asked me for a description of the course, and, and they approved it. And there I was all of a sudden um, about to teach a class on love, an exploration of love. I've taught it four times now, and um, through those four years, over those four years, the title of the class has, has finally sort of uh, settled in to what I really mean, which is love as a force for social justice. It's a small class of very wonderful students, and um, I've now um, become very interested in in um, pursuing the, these ideas that have that started out in that way, but not abandoning my interest in in women because the the centrality of the issue of violence was what led me to an interest in nonviolence and then in love. Um, so that's where I am now. That's the sort of progression of 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 my thinking. How do how do your students respond? Tell us more about the course. Well, the course is, after all, being taught at a university, and it's um, therefore has to have some sort of academic content. Um, and um, in it, we look at love and whether it's important to define the term, the different ways love is used, what is love. Um, we uh, talk about nonviolent communication and how one can communicate with others uh, in ways that are nonviolent. We look at uh, love as the basis for social action in different religions and look at various different religions. Uh, we look at love at the love in the brain. What happens when people, um, not just when people fall in love, because that's one thing that happens in the brain, um, a kind of an addiction. But more important for our purposes, what happens when people are feeling compassion and uh, compassion for others? That kind of love and what happens in the brain when that happen, when when people feel that way, um, and so on. And we and we round out the class. Um, with uh, some discussion about um, and visits from social activists who actually do their work with, you might say, with love at the center, with a consciousness that they are not only doing good work, trying to be good doctors or trying to be good lawyers or trying to be good development people, but doing it with a conscious sense of compassion or loving kindness. And so we have visitors to the class who talk about their work in those in those ways. I, I think one of the things that um, uh, your colleague had suggested to me was that, or or asked about, was this business of the mantra that I tend to use, which is that what we do is important, but the way we do it is more important, and that the way we do it may even be transformative. Yes, tell and us that's, what you mean by that. And that's really what I think earlier you had suggested, what did I learn from uh, from the Global Fund and my 10 years at the Global Fund? And that's one of the things that I learned, that I think that we can do good things, we can be good teachers, and we can be very competent in whatever we do. But the way we deliver our services, the way we live our lives, is so much more important than what we do. Um, and I think we all probably have had an experience of maybe visiting a doctor who, you know, puts you through a bunch of tests and sends you the results or something afterwards and, and makes a couple of comments, or a doctor who stops and explains and looks you in the eye and says, you know, what we've found is thus and so, and um, who seems to communicate a level of caring 
about you as an individual person who may be having to cope with a difficult um, a difficult outcome or something. Um, the difference between a person who's just um, delivering a service in the way in in some sort of competent way versus a person who's doing that competently but going beyond that and allowing his or her humanity to um, enter the relationship consciously. It's a huge difference. One, uh, the experience is a totally different experience from uh, one to another. And I think we all can imagine that. I mean, even in a, in a shop or a, uh, an interchange you might have in a, uh, with, a, with a person who's, um, you know, packing the groceries, um, looking over and, and being, uh, having a human interchange instead of just a, a, a sort of robotic uh, response. Um, it's, it can make a huge difference. It can make the difference that you, when you leave the store or when you leave the doctor's office, how you're going to lead your life. Well, and I think it can, I, I mean, there's, there are many examples. Um, I think it can change lives. And I think that it would be wonderful if everybody were conscious of their power. Uh, it's a huge power to have an interaction with somebody. You know, you might catch that person just at a moment in time when they need a smile or a pat on the back or a hug or, or just recognition that they are um, a real human being and they are important to you for that, even for that moment. Um, it can completely change a person's life. And you never know when somebody is at a moment when they need uh, something like that as opposed to just a, a cold and um, unfeeling or distant um, interchange. It, it, it's very important. Yes. Um, I, I think listening to you describe the difference is, um, is, is something for us all to really reflect upon. And I, I wonder if you could take us one step farther and make the connection to what you mean by social justice. How is that social justice? Yeah, I think um, my my little course is called Love as a Force for Social Justice, and I want to just take a moment and, and sort of define love, and then I'll get to your question. I mean, not really define it, but let me say what I think of as love, and many people have many different ideas, but what I think of as love is almost like a coin where you have one side, which is compassion, which is the prevention of pain, and the other side, which is loving kindness, which is the promotion of happiness. So you have these two sides of love, loving kindness, promotion of happiness, um, uh, compassion, the avoidance or the elimination of pain. So love is, it has both those sides to it, I think. Um, anyway, why love as a force for social justice? Uh, just simply that I think that it's a kind of a strategy we could use as we go beyond our family and friends where presumably we're going to express uh, loving kindness and, and compassion. Um, but we go beyond that and reach out to people who may not be as fortunate as we are. We may be uh, orthopedic surgeons who fly to Haiti to work in hospitals for people that they've never met before. They go, you know, they volunteer. There were many people who did that after the earthquake and, and Haiti. They they went. 
They, they got no compensation. They paid for it. They were there strictly to alleviate pain, essentially, for people that they didn't know. And it was, that was love. I mean, that is love. We could call it, or it's compassion. It's, it's that side of love mm-hmm. where I see that you are in pain, and that is why I'm here for you. That, that's simply from a, a mantra that I, that I happen to like from Thich Nhat Hanh. But, Thank you so much, Anne. I, I also love Thich Nhat Hanh and, and his mantras and his work. And believe it or not, we're coming up on another break here. <laughs> okay. um, I, I'm enjoying uh, the way that we're having our conversation today because as you're talking, the themes from your story, like the, the theme of, um, of, of justice, the theme of, um, of um, em, you know, empo- being empowered, supporting people, of um, looking at the experience and, and um, rather than turning away, actually turning into it. You know, these are the kinds of things that I think our listeners are, are hearing as you're telling the story. There's so many threads. We're going to be right back. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Thank you for joining me today. This is Kate Ebner, and I'm talking with Ann Firth Murray. Um, she has authored two books. She's dedicated her life to understanding uh, not only, I want to say love as a force for social justice, actually a big heading for her work for women around the world and also helping all of us step into a more conscious way of um, moving moving through life. So we were talking about this um, very powerful 
course that you're offering and these these ideas that um, that you're developing through your teaching. And and of course, our show is called Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. And a big invitation we're really making to our listeners is to see themselves as capable of vision, people who um, who can see the future they want and actually work to create it. And in our way of thinking about vision, you know, vision is really a, a detailed picture of the future that you desire. So I want to invite you to share and what you what you see as your vision? What's the vision that really inspires you? Um, okay, uh, let me step back and say that um, in creation, in the creation of the Global Fund for Women, the vision for equality and women's full participation in society and empowerment was absolutely at the center of that organization. And I believe that the clarity of that vision was a reason that the organization was so successful and continues to be successful. Now, from that interest, and and I don't mean from in terms of abandonment, but because of my interest and concern about violence and then an increasing interest in nonviolence and then an an interest in love as nonviolence, I guess my vision now would be for a world in which people, all people, are consciously demonstrating Love, loving kindness and compassion. And love just not just for those immediately within our immediate circle, but beyond, for, uh, for the good of humanity, for social justice, for the good of humanity. So my vision really is that people would be able to become uh, conscious of that power within them, which is a power of um, compassion and loving kindness. It's there. Um, and I am an idealist in this way. I believe people are basically good. Um, I think that when you begin talking about love, and we can talk about compassion and loving kindness, nonviolence, peace, courage, um, when you start talking about these things in our world now, which is so sort of fast-moving and technical in many ways, people like it. They want to, they want to talk about it. They, I, I, uh, I don't think we have time, but I gave a talk the other day at the, the University of um, California up at Davis to a, a group of doctors and residents and medical students, and I talked about uh, women's issues, women's health issues. I was invited to talk about international women's health, and I did. And at the end, toward the end, there were questions, and one man uh, asked me, he said, what advice do you have for us as doctors um, in addressing the women's health issues that that you've been talking about. And I said, well, you know, at the risk of sounding touchy-feely, let me talk about my other class and and the the fact that I my advice to you would be that you know what we do our work what the way we do our work I mean what we do is important but the way we do it is more important and I elaborated and talked about how, how a doctor could be a competent doctor but could go beyond it in being a, a loving uh, a loving caring person um, and I said this and after I mean everyone stood up and clapped everyone and and then you know five six seven people came up afterwards and said. I'm so glad you talked about caring. I'm so glad you talked about love. And I think there's a tremendous desire by people to express their goodness and and express that basic 
um, kindness that, that I believe we have within us. And you can see it in little children who, who are very giving, you know, and um, so I, that's my, my vision is for a world where people are much more consciously expressing loving kindness and, and compassion. You know, one thing that really, um, oh gosh, I have so many thoughts. One thing that really stands out for me is um, how beautiful, again, how clear that vision is, how clearly expressed. Um, but I've learned from doing this show that when I hear a great vision, I, the hair on the back of my neck rises, which it just did. <laughs> so I know that's a good one. But the other thing I wanted to say is that you mentioned, you know, the 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 idea of, of love, you know, we, we all hear love and we think touchy-feely. Mm-hmm. Yet there's something in the way you approach this that's incredibly pragmatic and accessible and and um, and logical, really. So I, I also want to acknowledge that because I, I think you're right. People really do want to be having this conversation and they want to see it as part of who they are, not something they have to hide and keep yeah. talking to them. Well, one uh, one thing that that is that is inspiring to me is that it, from my class, you know, Stanford evaluates all the classes that you teach, and so you, the students give um, anonymous evaluations afterwards. And uh, on the last round, several of the students in this class, in the love class, said one of the things that I liked most about this class was that I realized that love wasn't just some vague con- concept, but it was something that you could teach or or that you could actually learn. And uh, my favorite part of the class was the exercise, and we have an exercise every week when they blog about um, observing an act of um, love as a force for social justice, or if they don't observe it, then uh, do it, do one, and then write a, a little page about it in your blog. And so they do that every week. And that was that's often what the students say is their favorite part, because it gives reality to what we're talking about. Uh, it can happen. I mean, people can be good. They can be loving. We see it all around. I mean, mm-hmm. all, all around. There are many examples. Mm, there are many examples. You know, for our listeners who are listening today and, and hearing in this show, you know, you've given so many amazing and important messages. You know, what encouragement would you like to offer them? Well, um, there have been actually studies about how healthy it is to become a giving person. Um, in other words, um, volunteering, um, donating even, uh, volunteering to, um, you know, prepare meals or serve meals to homeless people, whatever it might be, um, volunteering at the Humane Society, uh, volunteering anywhere, who knows where, uh, help reaching out and, and, and making a difference, being there for someone else. These are Thich Nhat Hanh's mantras. Dear one, I am there for you. Dear one, I, I see that you are in pain. That is why I'm there for you. That is why I'm here for you, and so on. And the most important mantra, of course, is, "Dear one, I am in pain. Please help me." The 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 ability to reach out and seek help, have help, and not only give help. But what I really wanted to say is that in that process of volunteering and giving, um, people gain and people remain healthier. It's actually being studied. You know, I mean, they, they, you live longer if mm-hmm. you're a, a kind and, and loving person. Every reason, every reason to go 
down this path. You know, I'm sure that, um, like me, many people uh, listening would like to continue to follow your work and perhaps read your book, From Outrage to Courage, Women Women Taking Action for Health and Justice, which I know is about to come out in its second edition. I wonder, where can we go to follow you? Um, You know, I should have a very good website, and my website is is not very good. It's constantly in transition, (laughs) constantly. But there are websites for the two books. There's a website for Paradigm Found and a website for um, um, uh, From Outrage to Courage, which in the second edition is going to have a slightly different subtitle called uh, The Unjust and Unhealthy Situation of Women in Poorer Countries and what they're doing about it. That's from outrage to courage. But in Paradigm Found, I talk a little bit about the basis for what I think will will become maybe something more that I'll write uh, on the topic of, of love. Um, uh, you know, they can go to, the, go to those websites. They can send me an email. Um, they can uh, read my books, I guess. I don't know. Well, that's great. I mean, I think I think that that's what we like to do is just give give um, give people a chance to continue uh, to to learn from from you and and from your leadership. You know, we're at the end of our hour, and um, I just want to say one more time. You know, you you expressed this beautiful sentiment that what we do is important, but the way we do it can be far more important and even transformative. And I want to just echo that at the end of the hour as a real invitation to all of us to think not maybe maybe not so much about what we're doing, but actually how we're doing it. So my guest today has been Anne Firth Murray, and we've been talking about um, really love as a force for global healing, as a force for social justice, and we've been also talking about um, the extraordinary life and career she's had working um, for for women and working for social justice and really helping to rebalance uh, what's happening in the world. I want to say thank you, Anne. It's just been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciated it. Thank you. Have a great day. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.